Last night was good, is what I said. Last night was a wonderful time together and a very humble and big thank you to Larry and Lynn for their uh, great effort preparing it and having a, just, just a good time of fellowship and food. And be encouraged, brethren. The Lord is in control. He's more in control than, than we think, than we know. So I am not discouraged. Let's turn to John 21, 21, and look at verse 18. I'll ask you to stand for the reading of his word here. John 21, 18 to 25. <clears throat> The word of God. Truly, truly, amen, amen. I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not want to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John, the one who also had leaned back on his breast at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Well, Peter, therefore seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want you to remain until I come, what to you? You follow me. This saying, therefore, went among the brethren that the disciple John would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I want him to remain until I come, what to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. They breathed out word of God. Let me pray. Blessed Father, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for stirring your servant, the Apostle John. After the wave of the first three gospels has washed over the churches of the Mediterranean world, you then stirred the writing, the breathing out of this gospel to take your church deeper. This is a beautiful expression of who thy son is, and we are so grateful, Father. Your tender care, your providential care, your exquisite determinations for us are utterly beyond us, and we, we acknowledge that, even in our day. 
but be blessed and honored. And Master, speak. Let us sense the beauty that is in you as you express yourself to Peter. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> John chapter 21 is unique. John chapter 22 is more unique. <laughs> 21 stands out. Uh, because if the gospel had ended with the last two verses of chapter 20, it would have been perfect. Many other signs Jesus performed, not written in this book, but the, this is John 20, 30, and 31. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It would have been a perfectly seamless book from beginning to end, from kiver to kiver. And yet the Apostle John, under divine guidance by the Spirit of Truth, included this incredibly insightful chapter. In fact, this is the longest resurrection appearance account in the Gospels. And it's fundamentally about the Apostle Peter. And while Peter maybe must have been internally conflicted, yet the disciple band still follows his leadership, his initiative. That's, that's striking. John's focus is that this is yet another manifestation of the post-resurrection of Christ. He says that in verse 14. It's uh, important to the Spirit, to John, for us to catch that. And Christ's particular focus is Simon Peter. In fact, the lessons Peter was taught are rife with application for us today. Let's walk through an explanation of these verses as they encounter us today. John tells, first three verses, John tells us that gathered at the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, were Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, and two others who are not named, when Peter says, I'm going fishing. What are we to assume about Peter here? Well, he probably felt somewhat uncomfortable after his catastrophic failure the eve of Jesus' arrest. Did he feel all eyes were on him? Many probably were. Were his eyes downcast as he walked north away from Jerusalem? where he was rather easily recognized. Oh, how the words must surely have continued to sting. You are not also of his disciples, are you? And did I not see you in the garden with him? His traitorous, cowardly behavior likely had even justified the rejection of many of the gospel of Jesus. Look at him. Well, judging from the events of this chapter 
And I say that for those of you who are pondering my description of Peter. Judging from what takes place in this chapter, these thoughts and others must have weighed heavily upon him. Thus he announces, I'm going fishing. Now the question here is, was this just a shrug of the shoulders and, well, we haven't received power from on high yet? I don't think so. Based on what transpires immediately afterwards, some of it spoken, some of it not spoken, based on what transpires in this account of Christ dealing with Peter, especially after the attempt at fishing all night, I think it's rather clear Peter is, at least for the moment, returning to his former vocation. I've failed. There's no future for me in the path I've been on. He rose from the dead. I betrayed him. I was a coward. If he was real with his self-assessment and prayers, such words would indeed have come into his mind. So here we find Peter returning to his former vocation. Maybe it wasn't long-term, but he is returning to his former vocation at the moment. He's headed back to what he knows, back to what he was good at, back to what he is convinced he still will be good at. It's been his history. It's been his path. It's been his area of expertise. It is what he was and still is good at. Well, they get the boat into the water, presumably at twilight or sundown, for such was the pattern of fishermen. And toiling all night, they grimly pull in the wet nets again and again. Nothing. Not one fish. How many times can you repeat the gathering of these nets and then casting of them out again only to pull in these water-laden nets again. You look at each other in the eye. You shake your head. What is going on? Not one fish. Verse 3 is dismal. That night they did not catch anything. That night they caught nothing. Well, look at 4 through 6. Day is breaking now. Day is breaking and Jesus is standing on the shore. Of course, they don't know that. But that does not change the reality that their master, he who rules wind and wave, is standing on the shore intently watching them. Did you catch that? Did the application ring true? Oh, this speaks to us loudly. We've been right here and tasted this very thing in our lives individual, in our life as a church. Our efforts may have failed. We've caught no fish. 
All our attempts may have fallen flat. We are weary. We are tired. But Jesus is standing on the shore, intently watching. (laughs) Pulpit search committee, thy master stands on the shore watching thee. PPC Church, thy glorious, all-wise God is intently watching us. You may not know exactly what the divine hand is doing, but thy Savior King does. Has he not demonstrated this to us again and again? And so we say, you can say it with me, Duties are ours, events are the Lord's. Join me now. Duties are ours, events are the Lord's. Calvin says, God often tries believers that he may lead them to more highly value his blessing. (laughs) If we were always prosperous, When we put our hand to labor, scarcely any man would attribute to the blessing of God the success of his exertions. All would look at their industry, their hard work, and would kiss their own hands. But when they sometimes labor and torment themselves without advantage, if they happen afterwards to succeed better, they are constrained to acknowledge something out of the ordinary, and the consequences that they begin to ascribe to the goodness of God, the praise of their prosperity and success. Failures are good. They keep our eyes focused where they should be. Well, Jesus cries out, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they cry out, No. Imagine a hundred yards distance, there was a cry. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find. It's interesting, and I don't know if this is the exclusive location, but he calls them children. Did you catch that? Just a little different. Children. One commentary cites an English equivalent in the use of lads. Lads, do you have any fish? In the maximum security prison, the AWP assistant warden of programs, my immediate supervisor, if I called him, if he saw me out on Front Street, his immediate words were, Well, hey, buddy. Nobody else called me buddy. But he did. And that established a, I don't quite know how to describe it, but a sense of connectedness. Children, lads, do you have any fish? Notice there is no lording it over them. Let that softly tenderize your view of Jesus. Some of us have a very 
<clears throat> hard, stiff view of the master. Let this tenderize it. Calvin again. Well, firstly, they do. They throw the net over the right side and then can't haul it in because of the great number of fish. <laughs> Calvin. It was no small proof of patience and perseverance that though they had labored unsuccessfully during the whole night, they continued their toil after the return of daylight. Indeed, if we wish to allow an opportunity for the blessing of God to descend on us, we ought constantly expect it. For nothing can be more unreasonable than to withdraw the hand immediately from labor if it does not give promise of success. Hmm. So Mark and Pulpit Search Committee, we anticipate all-nighters. <laughs> no, but you see the point. We don't give up. We don't give up. Because he hasn't given up. He hasn't given up. It's not wise to give to your child immediately everything they ask for just when they ask. No, there are deeper lessons to be learned. Well, the Apostle John's heart instantly, you see it there in verse 7, instantly connects the overwhelming volume of fish with the Lord. And he cries out to Peter, it is the Lord. Now John couldn't see Jesus. There's a figure a hundred yards away in the early morning light. John can't see him, but John concludes from this overwhelming blessing that has just come, that's got to be the Lord. How is this with you? When a blessing comes, do you immediately perceive the Father's hand? When a blessing comes, is your first thought, thank you, Father? Do you acknowledge him to your spouse, to your co-workers? Speaking with one of the men in the church who finds himself surrounded by people who say, oh, what good luck, constantly, or bad luck. And he was feeling somewhat uh, bad that he was not saying something to help correct a more God-fearing view. And I suggested maybe saying something like, how fortunate that's soft. Blessed providence is harder. <laughs> but just say blessed providence. How fortunate. How is it with you? When the good thing comes, do you think, thank you, Father, for this too? When Peter hears that it's the Lord, he puts his outer garment back on. He was stripped for work, probably down to a loincloth. And Calvin observes, but as John goes before Peter in faith, Peter goes before John in zeal. <laughs> and that is illustrative of 
the excellent leadership qualities in this man. Verses 9 to 14. 9 to 14. But the remaining disciples, about a hundred yards out, continued dragging the net full of fish to the shore. And once to the shore, they see a charcoal fire near Jesus with fish placed on it, cooking along with bread. And Jesus says, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. The picture is one of a breakfast already made, a breakfast that the Lord has already prepared for them. If you've ever cooked or fried freshly caught fish around a campfire, as we have, the image is incredibly inviting and the potential for the wonders of heaven just fill your imagination. For Christ here in his glorified body presumably sat down eating fish and bread with them around a charcoal fire. Can you see the smile on his face, the twinkle in his eye, chewing and saying, man, this is good. And, oh, glory, glory in Emmanuel's land. We have no idea the joyful wonders of heaven together. No idea. Well, Simon Peter drags the net by himself onto the beach. And the miracle is twofold. The net does not tear, and 153 fish. Well, fishermen always do tell fishing stories, don't they? You should have seen the size of that one. You catch 100. You're going to want to count those babies. And they counted. Jesus says, come have breakfast. He takes the bread and fish and gives it to them. Application. What do we learn here? Because it's, it's pregnant with meaning for us. What do we learn here in verses 1 through 14? We may not know precisely Peter's frame of mind going fishing. But it's clear that the all-wise God, our Lord Jesus, took control of fishing that day, did he not? Peter turns back to what he was, to what he did before Jesus called him, and the master saw to it that he fell flat on his face. Sovereign providence is writ large over this entire 21st chapter. In other words, Peter, let me show you what you can do that's contrary to my will for you, and it will achieve nothing. Nothing. Clearly, John is reflecting on Luke's account in Luke 5. In Luke 5, Jesus had gotten into Simon's boat. This is a kind of a first encounter with Simon. He was escaping the pressing crowds. And after Jesus finished speaking from the boat, he said to Simon, go out to the deep water and there let down your nets for a catch. 
And doing so, their nets began to break for the huge quantity of fish. They called the twin sister boat over to them, filled both boats. Both boats start to sink. Peter falls down and says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, Lord. Jesus is clearly here in John 21 telling Peter, Simon, fishing for fish is in your past. But in your preaching, what a huge haul of people I will achieve through you. What you've always been comfortable with, Peter, it's in your past. Step forward, follow me. 15 through 23, the restoration of Peter. Reflect back on the first half of this chapter. Peter turns back to his past vocation, his, his past comfort zone. And Jesus stops him dead in his tracks. Peter, you're going to succeed only in the path I've laid out for you. Any other path will fail you. But did you notice how Christ set the stage for the threefold questions that he'll ask in verses 15, 16, and 17? How he he set the stage in verse 9 Next to where Jesus was standing was a what? Verse 9, a charcoal fire. Where have we encountered a charcoal fire before? Yes, in chapter 18, verse 18. Peter is beside a charcoal fire when he denies Christ. Peter is beside a charcoal fire in 1818 when he denies Christ. In fact, Luke 22, starting with verse 54, tells us Peter was sitting around the fire in the middle of the courtyard. And it was by that fire that Peter denied knowing Christ three times. But immediately, Luke tells us, while he was still speaking the third denial... A cock crowed, and Luke tells us, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him before a cock crows today, you'll deny me three times. The last charcoal fire he was at. Jesus looks into his eyes as Peter denied him the third time. Now here is the master again by a charcoal fire (laughs) offering him bread and cooked fish. Do you see the tenderness of Jesus. You can't miss. Do you see the deep, deep wisdom of Jesus here? He takes Peter right back to the point of failure. 
and with a smile and gladness of eye, hands Peter bread and fish and redefines charcoal fires for Peter. Oh, the grace. Oh, the tenderest of love, the wisdom of our master to take us back to the place of failure, the place of turning away, and say, let's start over again. Woman, where are thy accusers? There are none, Lord. Neither do I accuse thee. Go and sin no more. Grace, grace, grace. This is how husbands and wives should relate to and help each other. The charcoal fire motif. This is how parents should relate to engaging their child with loving hope. The charcoal fire motif. This is how biblical counseling can benefit helping wounded fallen believers. Reflect long and hard on just how Jesus met Peter to restore him. Well, I suggest that after eating an enjoyable breakfast together, Jesus turned to Peter and said, Let, Peter, let's go for a walk. And John followed, because where Jesus is, John is too. And it's clear that they've gone for a walk, for in verse 20, Peter turns around and sees John following them. So they went for a walk, was was the arm of Jesus around Peter's shoulder? I wouldn't be surprised. Reflection. First, charcoal fire revisited, redefined. It was very central in the Master's plan to restore Jesus, or to restore Peter. But the question must be asked, in that person that you are thinking of that needs a charcoal fire experience between you and them, is that even your desire, restoration? Or are you so fixed on bitterness of heart and hatred that you just want to destroy them? Then you, my friend, need a charcoal fire visit from the master. Second reflection, restoration takes time. He prepares the fire, the fish. He invites them. They come up. How long did it take? Peter drags the net by himself this time. Drags the net, doesn't tear. 153 fish up onto the shore. And they sit down, and they're cooking fish and talking. And, you know, how long did that take around that fire? It wasn't over in five minutes. And then Jesus says, let's go for a walk. 
Restoration takes time. Be patient. Well, Jesus turns to Peter and three times says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Listen to the wisdom of Calvin here for Calvin's pastoral insight now in the second half of chapter 21 is worth its weight in pastoral gold. That the disgrace of Peter's apostasy might not stand in his way, Christ blots out the memory of it. Such was necessary both for Peter and his hearers. For Peter, that he might more boldly execute his office, being assured of the calling with which Christ had again invested him. Three denials, three questions. Peter, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And this was necessary, Calvin says, for his hearers, that the stain attached to Peter might not cause a despising of the gospel. If John had had any reflective, wise questions about Peter's appropriateness in the apostolic band or the others, this settled that <laughs> decisively by the master. Grace, grace, grace is God's remedy for the erring son or daughter. It's grace that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O oh God, Romans 2, 4. It's his kindness. Calvin continues, by these three questions, Christ means that no man can faithfully serve the church feeding the flock if he do not look higher than to men. You can't be a pastor, you can't be a RE if your vision is just horizontal. Can't do it. For the office of feeding is in itself laborious and troublesome. Since nothing is more difficult than to keep men under the yoke of God, among whom there are many who are weak, others who are wanton and unsteady, others who are dull and sluggish, and others who are slow and unteachable. That's Calvin. And that's true. He continues, no man will steadily persevere in the discharge of this office unless the love of Christ shall reign in his heart in, in such a manner that forgetful of himself and devoting himself entirely to Christ, he overcomes every obstacle. Those who are called to govern the church ought to remember that if they are desirous to discharge their office properly and faithfully, they must begin with 
the love of Christ. That is where it begins. Do you love Jesus? Is far more important than a lot of other questions. Well, observe the following question Christ gives. Three times, verse 15, feed my lamb, 16, tend or shepherd my sheep, 17, feed my sheep. Calvin again, true faithful teachers ought to remember to gather all to Christ. And as they cannot distinguish between sheep and wild beasts, they ought to try by all methods, if they can, tame those who resemble wolves rather than sheep. <laughs> yes, that is true biblical direction, but it's not always easy, and it's laborious and sometimes hard. And without thanks. Calvin. But after having put forth their utmost efforts, their labor will be of no avail to any but the chosen sheep. For docility and faith arise from this that the Heavenly Father delivers to his Son, that they may obey his Son, those whom he chose before the creation of the world. Again, we are taught by this passage that none can be fed to salvation by the doctrine of the gospel, but those who are mild and teachable. Am I a mild, teachable man? Am I a mild, teachable woman? This is the description Christ gives of his children, of his sheep. It, Calvin again, it is not without reason that Christ compares his disciples to lambs and sheep. <laughs> But listen to this. But it must also be observed that the Spirit of God tames those who by nature were bears or lions. Yes, he does. So you love, you love, you love. You extend grace, grace, grace. You look for charcoal fires. And you ask hard questions. Oh, not hard theological questions, though those are important, but hard questions like, do you love Jesus? Tell me about your love for Jesus. Well, verse 17 indicates Peter was grieved. Peter was not yet sufficiently aware how how deeply the love of Christ must be engraven on the hearts of those who have to struggle against innumerable difficulties. And that is what he has taught me. Three years hospice chaplaincy. I did not approach it then as I do now. 
Now I point to Jesus exclusively. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's the only way you can cope with the waters that you're going through. Well, finally, Calvin says, we are likewise taught that we ought patiently and mildly submit. If at any time the Lord subject us to a severe trial because he has good reasons for doing so though they are generally unknown to us <laughs> so the candidate for December 5th will not be here December 5th I guess it can't go down too far <laughs> so the candidate for December 5th will not be here December 5th but that was known by the father why did he tell us? I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's known by the Father. And he knows who his pastor is for this church. You can count on that. Well, Peter turning sees John. This is the final portion. If I didn't have my glasses on, I now would not be able to see the pages. <laughs> as it shrunk. Peter turning sees John and says, Lord, what about this man? The Christian walking through a painful time in life just wants to know from God, when are you going to fix my problem? When are you going to fix my wife? When are you going to fix my husband? All I want is a good husband, a good one. Lord, what about this man? Peter's action here was hurtful, being drawn aside from his own duty by looking at his neighbor. And that's where I said last week, it really is so very simple. Your issue that you're struggling with, stop looking at neighbor. Just stop looking at neighbor. Oh, you have to pray about neighbor. There will be occasions, but don't camp there. Don't be embittered there. Don't give up all hope there. What about this, Lord? What is that to you? You follow me. Calvin says, scarce one person in a hundred considers the importance of those words of Paul in Galatians 6, 5. Galatians 6, 5. Every man shall bear his own burden. In the person of one man, in the person of one woman, there is a general reproof of all who look around them in every direction to see how others are acting and pay no attention to the duties God has enjoined on them. Above all, they are grievously mistaken in this respect that they neglect and overlook what is demanded by every man's special calling. Out of ten persons it may happen that God shall choose one, 
that he may try him by heavy calamities or by fast labors, and that he shall permit the other nine to remain at ease, or at least shall try them lightly. Besides, God does not treat all in the same manner, but makes trial of everyone as he thinks fit. There are various kinds of Christian warfare. Let every man learn to keep his own station. And let us not make inquiries like busybodies about this or that person when the heavenly captain addresses each of us to whose authority we ought to be so submissive as to forget everything else. End quote. That's Calvin. That's biblical truth. It really is a whole lot simpler than some of us think. If we would just tend to our own duties, you don't have time to fuss with your neighbor, <laughs> even if they're fussing with you. Do your duty. Events are the Lord's. Well, Christ cuts Peter's curiosity short here, telling him that he ought to obey the calling of God and that he has no right to inquire, or what about that person? Application, very briefly. If you spend your time thinking about and talking about other people, you may well not be dealing with your own duty given you by your Lord. You're spending your time talking and thinking about your neighbor instead of what would the Lord have you do? Troubles and conflicts between husbands and wives would largely dissipate if each would hear the master's words, what is that to you? You follow me. And Christian man, Christian woman, Jesus is asking, do you love me? Do you love me? Do I love him more than all else? Can you see the dear master sitting around the campfire where you are reaching out a piece of bread asking you, do you love me? Follow me. Duties are yours. Events, causations, thy neighbor. The question why are mine, my child, do you love me? Father, I pray that in these uh, intense words, heart-stirring, impacting words that, that Jesus, you gave to Peter, I pray you'll teach us to be a people that well understand charcoal fires, that with wisdom we use charcoal fires, to help restore. Help us to not make inquiry constantly into what about them, but help us to ask the question, what, O oh Lord, is thy will for me to do today? For we confess that duties are ours, O oh Lord, but events, those are yours, our Lord, in Christ's name. Amen.